So suddenly it's like, I've just locked in for two years with not enough money to do it for two years and I'm going to run out before then. So we really need to find some more customers now. So right. I really hope we've done the right thing here. In some ways, that was the scariest point because I didn't have a parachute. You're very welcome along to People Building Businesses, the new podcast from YBF Ventures. My name is Jason Lim. I'm the chief of staff here at YBF. And this is the podcast where you learn exactly how businesses grow by talking to people who are actually building them. Our guest today is James Leatham. James is the founder of Vendor Panel, which is a leading Australian procurement platform. It helps organizations to simplify procurement and supplier management, reduce risk, maximize savings, and drive positive social outcomes. It was named one of the top 20 Westpac businesses of tomorrow in 2018, and received an award for most innovative use of technology from the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. James has a wealth of experience from being a mountain instructor to a leadership consultant with Foxtel to being a managing partner at a company acquired by an ASX-listed company to starting his own business. So before we get into it, you can subscribe to People Building Businesses in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and there's also a video version on YouTube. Okay, let's talk to James Latham. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you, Jason. You know, I, I like starting these podcasts by getting a feel and understanding for James the person. So um, if you could entertain us for a bit, tell us a bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, and maybe some early influences in your life. Right. Um, so I was born in Australia, in Victoria. Um, spent probably the first 10 years of my life here. Went over to Western Australia um left home when i was 15 to return to live with my dad for a couple mm. of years and then left finally when i was 17 uh went off to uni um and like a lot of people that was a fairly formative phase of life for me sure. um so did a lot of travel uh i was had the opportunity to work with some pretty impressive people um as a research assistant or a, a pa to some people that were um super interesting and um, very generous in what they shared with me um, and then took a bit of a right-hand turn and instead of going down a, a corporate path, ended up going into the, I guess, the outdoors, really. Sure, yeah. And uh, it says here that you studied international politics and natural resource management in university, in, in ANU. Interesting transition from studying that to now running a tech company. Yeah, you've, you've done your research. Well, well done. That's, that's um, our job. <laughs> so, look, and I actually studied a lot of things. That's what I graduated with. I studied right. in a lot of different disciplines while okay. I was there. Um, and look, I, I've, I'm really pretty passionate about um, the environment. I, I find, I guess, politics really interesting at that kind of more of the global level than at domestic politics. Um, I was lucky enough to work for a couple of years in an environmental consultancy whilst I was at uni. Sure. And I worked out pretty quickly that I, I actually wasn't that good at science. I wasn't really wired to become a politician on any level. Right. Um, and what I guess I identified was that when I, I sat there and looked at the how decisions were being made and how negotiations were occurring, it was really more about how people were interacting and communicating and making decisions. That was the actual barrier to getting really important outcomes. Sure. It wasn't a lack of good science. Um, so that was a convenient conclusion to come to because yep. then it gave me the opportunity to say, well, rather than just going off and trying to become more technically competent, really what I need to do is go and learn more about people and a great way to do that would be to go and actually, I guess, dive deeply into the whole leadership and people development space. Okay. And um, how do you transition from that to being a mountain instructor? It says here that you're a mountain instructor um, and you led expeditions up to 90 days in the Canadian Arctic Circle, U.S. Rocky Mountains, and even the Kimberley region of Northern Australia. Mm -hmm. Was that from your passion through nat natural resource management that led you into that? Uh, I guess I'd sailed all my life. So I'd been sailing since I was about five. Okay. Uh, oh. My family's fairly outdoorsy. So yep. um, I don't think we'd, I'd stayed in a hotel until I was like 20. We had, most of our holidays were camping and outdoors. Okay. Um, I started teaching sailing as in blue water sailing, which means you can't see land anymore. Right. Um, from the age of about 17. And whilst I was at uni, I worked with Outdoor Ed with school kids. Um, 
And so it was a pretty, like it was a relatively straightforward transition. Um, and I started out working in outdoor ed. Um, that industry, you start out working with kids and that was great. Wasn't really what I wanted to focus on. Um, okay. So then um, I actually had a, a pretty serious injury. So I took some time out, then came back and got more into what ended up leading me into the long range expedition space. Yep. Um, which I loved. I mean, it was, wasn't tourism. It was all 100% training, leadership development, teaching the Utah State University um, leadership and management program. So it was a really strong academic focus mm. and in a really strong, um, you know, real life focus. And when you're out in the field for 30, 50, 70, 90 days, it's not like you just get introduced to a triangle and a new concept. Like yep. you get to like try it out and, and rehabituate and kind of build muscle memory in different ways of working with people, different ways of making decisions, different ways of assessing risk. Yep. And and why not do that, you know, on the side of a funky mountain on the Arctic Circle? Cool, yeah. Seems like a good idea to me. And leadership seems to be something that has been pervasive um, from what we, we just spoke about in your time in university to your time uh, through being a mountain instructor to then your first few careers as well. You were a senior leadership and decisions consultant with CSM Knowledge. You were a senior learning and change consultant with Foxtel and eventually became a principal consultant and partner with BizEd Services. Could you just summarize how you ended up being a senior leadership and design decisions consultant and what those years looked like for you? Yeah, look, it sounds random, but I guess from my perspective, there was absolute continuity. Okay. Like, you know, in leading expeditions, which were fundamentally about leadership development and technical skill development, it's about teaching people. It's about the learning process and providing and facilitating that process. So whether it was learning how to either manage risk or deal with an emergency or make a decision after a long couple of weeks, it's like mm. it's still that learning environment. So when I came back to Australia, it was just like, well, how do I take those learning and development skills and apply them in the corporate space. So I just went straight into learning and development. Sure. So teaching people how to use technology, which at that time I knew nothing about. Right. Um, but I knew how to get people to learn. So I, I only had to be a half a step ahead of them technically and and it was really successful. Um, I joined Foxtel. I was, I was actually, I, I would say, pretty junior in that organisation um, despite the title, but it was um, – it was an interesting transition. So there's about 900 people in their call center transitioning from analog to digital. And wow. it's like, how do you get them all to know how to do process A on one day and process B on another with a completely different product set? Right. Um, so I ended up having a lot to do with that. Um, and then BizEd was a outsourced learning services business. So I stayed very much in that learning and development stream. Um, and BizEd was a, you know, it was an outsourced business processing organization. We had probably 20 of the ASX 100 as customers. Yep. Um, and it was that experience that kind of took me out of the learning space and into more the business space. Okay. And is that where you first noticed the procurement solution opportunity? Yeah. And I probably didn't even look at it as procurement. Okay. Yeah. I guess I just looked at it from a very, in hindsight, naive, simplistic way and just said, wow, we've got these customers and they're all household names and they've got thousands and tens of thousands of staff and a lot of them are allowed to buy stuff and they're going and buying lots of services and they're poorly defined kind of fuzzy goods and then sure. you've got thousands of suppliers in the market especially in the space of hr and learning which is a poorly defined market right so you got this the language back then which i would use would be like you got this sort of many to many relationship buying fuzzy poorly defined goods sure and it was just crazy like i just looked at it and just said this yep. is just it's not logical. It's invisible. There's no transparency. There's no process. There's no um, real competitive tension. There's no insights from the buyers about really is this the best capability in the market for what I need? Sure. And then you look at the suppliers and they're sitting there going, how on earth do I bash down the walls of working with a ASX 100 or a, a tier one government organization? And then they're sitting there and then underpinning all of this, they're using emails. And it's right. just like, what a crazy scenario. Like no one's got any insights, any real capacity to make informed decisions. So they're just doing what they did last time. And so really familiarity is the dominant methodology that people use when they're buying in, you know, in procurement. It's the same some familiar suppliers, same familiar process. Suppliers right. are trying to talk to the same cohort of customers potentially. So it's like... I just looked at it and just said, this is crazy. Yeah. Now, I was in a unique position because we were managing, you know, 
many tens of millions of dollars of buying between these big corporates and this supply chain. So we were able to see this whole dynamic. Sure. Um, that was really what had me say, this, there's got to be a better way. Yep. So you saw a gap in the market or a problem that was um, that was dying to be solved in, in some sense. Were there no companies out there doing you know, the, the solution to that problem and solving that problem? Not really. Yeah. I mean, so there's lots of real there's lots of B2B platforms. There's lots of commerce platforms. There's lots of procurement platforms. But they tended to operate at two ends of the spectrum, either at the bottom end in like catalogs, you know, shopping cart. You know, there's loads of that tech and there's some really awesome tech out there. Sure. Um, in that moving boxes kind of environment. And then there's a lot of smarts and a lot of technology in what they would call strategic procurement where you've got a, you know, a professional buyer running a sophisticated process to get you know, better value, less risk, all that sort of stuff. Sure. And then there's this tranche in the middle. It's unsexy, it's uncool, it's low value. It's, you know, we're talking $10,000, $50,000, $100,000, which in the context of an organisation, relatively low. Mm. Um, and they go, oh, just, just go and get three quotes. Yep. So you've got these non-professional buyers using a pretty basic process with real no, really no visibility. But, it, you know, no, it's just this sort of um, ignored corner of spend. Right, and okay. And look, there's still, most organisations are still at that point where they'll have procurement teams and functions and yet there's this long tail of low-value sourcing yep. that is still largely invisible and unmanaged. And okay. that is the bit we get excited about because it's, it's like by doing that we can like seriously transform elements of that organisation in terms of their relationship to the market, their relationship to suppliers, how they spend money and then what becomes possible when they look at the way they're spending money. Sure. I feel like we're getting into the origin story of Vendor Panel here. Um, we're seeing the early formative thoughts of starting your company. But before that happened, BizEd was acquired by Talent2, which was an ASX-listed company, if I'm correct. Not many people get to go through an acquisition. What was that experience like for you, especially since you were a partner um, at BizEd? Yeah, so I was a junior partner. So there were two founders and then... Um, kind of a senior partner and then two junior partners. I was one of the junior partners. Having said that, I managed the majority of the workforce that sure. reported into me and I had the majority of the revenue in terms of customers. But in terms of how long I'd been at the organisation, they were more senior than me. And it was just an awesome opportunity to to be a part of that process. And, yeah, I mean, I ended up sort of, you know, running a large chunk of that when we got acquired. Mm. Um I didn't do the deal, so I wouldn't make out like I I brokered the deal. Sure, yeah. But once you know, once the parties got together and there was you know interest, then I was definitely part of the due diligence. Mm. I got to get exposure to all of that, and we were doing that. Obviously, there's the, the four partners that were involved. Really, one of the other partners wasn't so much, um, and then still running the company on the side. So trying like really running that split process for a while. Yep. Yeah, massive learnings. Yeah. Um, and, and both learning what I would want to do next time and what I would absolutely do everything to avoid. Sure. And um, given that you were running such a large part of the workforce, what was it like on the team culture? People are generally quite averse to change so when an acquisition happens. Did that rock the boat at all for your team? Um, look, I think we did a pretty good job. Once it was announced that we were going to do the acquisition, I think like, we were very focused on looking after our people. Like that was a big part of the deal was what's going to happen to the people in the business. So we were really conscious of that. And, sure, yeah. And we worked really hard to have it be a good thing for staff. Invariably, some people will leave. They don't necessarily, you know, over time, they sort of say maybe this isn't the right place for me as the new culture. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of work put into kind of supporting our own internal staff. Um probably could have done more work on integrating more broadly into that company. Like I think we um, – that could have probably been done better in hindsight. Right. Um, yeah. And it was very different cultures. Like there was definitely some challenges. Okay. We, you know, we came from a – at even at a functional level. You know, we had a small hand, like 20, 30 major long, long-term customers. Right. They were a business that had, you know – way more staff than us, but they were way more transactional. It was sure. a recruitment company. Um, they'd also acquired payroll, so that was more similar to us. Yep. Um, but, yeah, no, it was it was a really interesting journey. So it was the acquisition and then it was the, um, I guess, the merger component and, and becoming a part of that. Okay. So both of those were really interesting. 
for our listeners out there, if um, they're about to be acquired or thinking of acquiring, do you have any tips for them in a simple short sentence or two? Eyes wide open. Yep. Like go and talk to employees of the company that's inquiring you, not just the people you're doing the deal with. Okay. Obviously, you need to be discreet in that. But yep. I think that would be prudent. Yep. And look after your people on the journey. That's great. Thanks for the uh, the tip. Not a lot of people go through that, so it's great to hear from someone who has. And um, at some point, you decided to start Vendor Panels. So it's been a 10-year journey for your company. You started the company in 2008. Talk us through what inspired you to start the company and what those early days looked like for you. Cool. Um, I actually originally took the idea to the new acquirers and said, hey, I think we could do this function instead of doing it with so many employees, we sure. could do it as a digital solution. Um, at that point in time, for a bunch of uh, factors, there was close to zero interest in that journey. Okay. Um, and so I basically, you know, wrote out a document and got the board to approve that if I went off and did this thing on my own, that it was mine, not theirs, and they would cast me loose. And as long as I didn't do it at work. Yep. Um, so that's kind of very squarely put it into the ballpark of either do this on my own outside of work or it doesn't happen sure and look the, uh, I guess I'm not of a disposition that working in a large corporate is really my style like I did my earn out I did a little bit extra because they made it really worthwhile to do a bit extra like another six months but it wasn't the right place for me sure so I you know I, I guess I was moving out of that space and you know that was a point in time in my life where it's like, if I'm going to have a go at this, like now's a good time. I was lucky to have obviously made some money out of the exit yep. so I could afford to go without money and income for a while. Um, and, you know, I didn't have kids. And so it was like, well, let's, let's have a go. Yep. And what's the, what, what did you feel like in the early days? Was it scary? Was it done? Was it exciting? Um, oh, look, I was pretty considered at the beginning. So I did commissioned a whole heap of research to validate whether or not it was... And by that, I don't mean I had some big research company. I sure. paid someone to make a heap of phone calls. Yep. So let's not make it sound bigger than it okay. was. <laughs> and I was just like, here's the four questions. I want you to call these 300 organizations and speak to this sort of person and answer these questions and just validate it. Um, and then I took a month off and went and designed it. I'm not technical. I designed the solution kind of as a logic data flow. Okay. Um, and then went through a process of trying to find someone to work with to develop it. Yep. Um, eventually found someone as a CTO kind of role and um, and engaged him as a contractor. So he wasn't like, I want to be part of a startup. He right. was like, I'll build it if you pay me. Sure. Once he got his head around it, he's like, you can pay me less if you give me a slice of the pie. Wow. Um, and then I kept working. So for a while I just split my salary. Right. Um, the jumping off point was, I guess that's when it got exciting and scary because yep. it was like now I'm actually going to cut the umbilical cord we're a month out from production. Yep. I'm going to quit. Let's go. Right. Wow. And um, for the first few years, you bootstrapped the company for three whole years and uh, went through numerous pivots as well. So what was that like? Oh, it was, I so underestimated time and effort. Right. It was a train wreck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was, um, look, the, sys the technology always worked really, really well. It's always been super solid tech. Um we went through five different brands, five different commercial models, wow. five different kind of starting points in addressing the problem. Um, and we went through those pretty quickly. Like in the first 12 months, we'd been through those five different pivots. Back then, I don't think we had that term, but yep, that's what we went through. Um, and kind of at the end of the first 12 months, we we sort of worked out what was what was going to happen. We got our first serious enterprise customer and even that itself was its pivot because we'd started out as a sort of like a a straight go-to-market much more open platform when we ended up working out that enterprise was a better place for us sure um and then the scariest bit was actually signing the first customer which i didn't realize until after we'd signed it right and it's like wow sure i've been paying two people's salaries and i haven't been paid for a year and a bit but suddenly we were signing a contract that was like wow i've up until now, I could pull the pin and the only thing that broke was maybe a little bit of disappointment and maybe my ego got a bit bruised or sure. whatever, but I had the freedom to walk away and I was now signing this paper that meant I couldn't do that easily. Wow, yeah. But the contract wasn't paying enough. 
that it was viable. So suddenly it's like I've just locked in for two years with not enough money to do it for two years and I'm going to run out before then. So we really need to find some more customers now. So I really hope we've done the right thing here. In some ways, that was the scariest point because I didn't have a parachute. Right. And was that the last pivot that your company made? Was that the, were you selling the solution that Vendor Panel is working on today or was that still a different idea back then? Um, I guess we were selling generation one. Right. Um, there's probably five layers to the problem set. We, we worked out which one was our starting point. Yep. Um, but it's expanded way beyond that. So okay. we started out just really managing you know, we're a large organization and we started out in government and they've got their preferred suppliers. How do they get how do they get that to work better? So if you've got a panel of preferred suppliers, how do you optimize that? How do you get that to operate more effectively? Now it's expanded over the years to be a full stack sourcing platform and it, it's a much broader story, but it's still fundamentally solving the same problem, which is when you've got decentralized, non-professional buyers going and buying stuff you know, through quotes, proposals, tenders, whatever. Sure. Um, that process is overwhelmingly hidden in emails, manual, inefficient, full of risk, probably the biggest risk hotspot in terms of procurement um, and loads of value being left on the table. Right, okay. So it's still fundamentally the same problem set. Our tooling now is dramatically more sophisticated than it was in 2010 when we launched Vendor Panel formally. Just a question before we jump forward. A tip for the listeners out there on how you recruited your first CTO, because for a lot of people, finding a co-founder is quite a tough and daunting experience as well. It sounds like you've done a good job at that in the early days. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't like I'm going to go and find a CTO. Yep. Um, and Rob, who who really was the technical lead, you know, he was really clear in where he what was he up for. Okay. Um, so which was interesting, you know, like the idea of someone who was jumping in and like it's this is us together and we'll do it together would, would have been really attractive. Yeah. Um, but you've got to be pragmatic. Like, you know, Rob had a, a young son. He, he had obligations in life. He didn't have the freedom to just jump in and say, let's see what happens. Sure. So, um, and, you know, the reality is he's pretty experienced. He's seen a lot of good ideas go up in flames. Right. You know, he's like, look, I don't know this market as well as you. I can, I can understand it and I can build it, but I don't know if I would back it yet. Right. Um, so I had like he was on the payroll. Okay. So we've collected a, a number of people, but it was, you know, people have had periods of going without income or whatever. But it was a different. It wasn't necessarily like I'm co-founding this, sort of at a formal level. But from my perspective, they've definitely put in the blood, the sweat, the tears that I would consider them kind of in that co-founder set. Yep. Um, like they are core to who the company's become. Yep. Um, I don't think any one of those arrangements was the same as the last one so rob was a contractor mark had taken a redundancy wanted to do something fun for a while right worked for him um you know another friend wanted to just break out of the corporate space or wasn't okay. a friend to someone i knew she wanted to break out it was something to try yep um uh david who's um you know moonlighted for a long time um the cool thing is none of them have left like, that's amazing everyone's wow. still there Ten years on, yeah, sort of like Hotel California, like no one leaves. <laughs> um, we'll play that over uh, over this <laughs> as we're talking. Um, yeah, so yeah, and it's just at different times, but I think that's one of the things is like it's got to work for people and their yep. stage of life, their risk appetite, um, and and I think that was part of the juggle. So in finding yep. co-founders, I think this sort of utopian thing that they're in it in the same way that you're in it, sure. Man, I think that would be really tough. And I think if you can find it, awesome. But I think it would be tough. What's your secret sauce on convincing these people to jump into the abyss of a startup? It seems like you've done a good job at that. Um, I'm, I am I used to be really structured in the way that I would do it. And a lot of that is like in, if you call them interviews, but really it was just sitting down and chatting. Like sure. I would put a structure to that. And one of those very clearly, I would sit down and say, cool, I want to catch up with you again next whenever and we'll have a coffee. And it's like, and just to be clear, I want to spend the entire time of this conversation explaining to you why this could very really be the worst decision you've ever made in wow. your professional life. And I actually really need you to get that. Yep. Like I need you to take responsibility for the gravity of that decision because it could be a train wreck. They know what they're signing up I for. I need you to sign up for because I don't want to carry this responsibility for you. Right. I need you to go in, but I need you to go in informed. And I don't want to be in a scenario where you turn around and go, 
seriously, man, you duped me. Yeah. Because I think that happens in all sorts of recruitment, not even founders. Like you look at, you know, we've doubled the size of our employee headcount in the last 12 months. We're hiring grads. We're hiring experienced people. Amazing. But like even in that point, it's like I really have an issue with this idea of recruitment where people sell a job. It's kind of like why sell it to them? Why not just tell them what it's really like? Because they're going to work it out soon enough. And you don't want them to come for six months and leave. Yep. So, no, that was a really big part for me. And I would also explain to them why why I wanted to make it, why I thought it was worth it. So I just I just lay it all out. Yep. Like, this is why I think it's awesome. This is the opportunity. This is the idea. This is how big I think it could get. Um, this is why it's a terrible idea. This is why I'm actually really hard to work with. Right. Um, and, you know, there's elements of me that it's like I get it. Like like everyone else, I've got my flaws. Yeah. I think I'm relatively self-aware. So I might as well tell you what I think they are so that you can decide if you want to work with someone like that. That's amazing. The transparency and honesty that you bring to the conversation probably helps you filter out the the right and wrong people for what you need and for There's what they need as well. definitely some people that, that, you know, we had two meetings, we had three meetings right. and that was it. And that's great. What an awesome outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So 2.5 years in, you were actually actively looking for jobs because... <laughs> I think you mentioned this before in one of your talks uh, yeah. that it was a rough period for you. What changed? Like, why was I looking for a job? Well, uh, why were you looking for a job, and why did you then decide to continue with Vendor Panel? Uh, we tacked. Okay. We absolutely bottomed out. I have very vivid memories of you know going to the ATM and emptying my personal account and counting out the twenty dollar notes. Jeez. And then being like, well, I don't know. Let's see if let's see if there's some more in there next week. Like like it was, and that didn't go for a week. Like that was, it was pretty grim for quite a long time. Wow. Um, financially, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I think that was not just financially challenging, but it took a toll. Like I think for a while there, probably my confidence took a bit of a battering. Like if I made a really really bad call here. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, I guess why was I looking for a job? It was functional. I needed to pay bills. I guess I was wavering in my belief. But it was interesting because I got an offer to job through a very close connection to GM, uh, someone else's company. And mm. I guess they had the backstory on me, the advantage of that, which was good. And I had some really good straight chats with them in that process. Sure. And they were smart enough to say, look, if you want the job, you've got it, but you have to shut down this thing you've been working on. Right. And I was like, why? I don't, I don't need to shut it down. I can do it on the side. You know, I have sufficient integrity to manage the delineation of that. Yeah. And they were smart enough to say, you have to shut it down because that's where your heart still is. And I think you're only taking this job until that gets some life in it and then you'll be out of here in a heartbeat. Wow. And the reality was, and right in that meeting, I said, you know what? You're probably right. And so, like, I couldn't accept it. Like, this is this guy's company, right? Like, I can't go and mess with that. So I was yeah. like, you know what? You're right. Uh, my heart is still in it. Sure. So that kind of was an interesting point in terms of going like, what can we do? Um, and we scraped through. Um, you know, luckily David was managed to make sure that, you know, financially we're always sort of viable, but as a company. So, but yeah, on a personal level, it was pretty, pretty grim. Yep. Um, and so part of it was I couldn't get a job. Sure. <laughs> so, no one would hire an entrepreneur no no one would give me a job so <laughs> we just stuck at it and then um i guess our first customer we had a really successful case study we we're able to demonstrate a lot of what we'd hypothesized um, we won a bunch more awards off the back of that and um that sort of gave us enough credibility to get into the meetings with the peers of that organization in every state of australia yep and once we did that i think they all fell within four months so we kind of went from grim to profitable eventually in a really short period of time that's amazing and what um, were you what would you attribute that success to um god I, I think you know people focus a lot on having a great idea like right. you know the reality is we had an incredibly good i had a very good insight to a significant problem mm. and and probably a unique perspective on that in given the experience that i'd had and I think we had some really good perspective on how to address that at a tactical and practical level. But I'm also a believer that like the good idea is about 5% and it's about execution. Right. And the reality is we 
have always executed like we were a company that was way bigger and way more established. And I don't mean fake it till you make it. I mean like we had systems and processes. We had standing operator se- operating procedures and we only had one customer. Right. But it was kind of like the market that we were in was so incredibly unforgiving that it's like if we drop the ball once, the game's over. Yep. So we had to um, really execute well and we had to deliver on every single promise that we made. Sure. Which meant we said no a lot, which some people found weird. Okay, that is but a hard thing for a lot of people. Yeah, we got, we were pretty good at it. <laughs> and it's like because we just can't afford to say yes and do a shabby job or we couldn't afford to say we could do it by that date and miss a timeline. And I know that most technologies have a reputation, technology companies have your reputation for being that. Yep. And so part of our original brand was like, we're, we're not like other tech companies. Right. Like, and, you know, we've been introduced from customer to customer on that basis sometimes. It's like, you know what, you'll either like it or you won't. It'll either suit you or it won't. But if they say they can do it, they can. Yep. And that's a great premise to go into a customer because we're not saying we can solve all their problems. We're really clear on the problem we can solve, but it's awesome to have a customer say, but if they say they can do it, then they can. Sure. Um, And as a leader of the company and a founder of the company, how did you find yourself setting the culture of the team to be able to say no, to be able to have a focus and process and rigor? Was it an easy thing to implement for a leader like yourself? um, Look, I think we just called that really early. Rob, who did the, he was originally the only developer, you know, he was just very clear. He's like, don't ever put me in a position where I'm in hot water. Like, yep. don't sell something that doesn't exist. Right. Um, and we took that to an extreme. Like, we would wait till it was fully in production before we'd even tell people it was wow. coming. Okay. Which is the opposite of probably yeah. um, a lot of thoughtful models. Absolutely. Um, but it meant that we were never exposed. Um, and it meant that we could take our time and be like, it's okay, but, but I'm not happy. Yep. And it's like, well then spend another month on it until you're happy because no one knew. So no one was breathing down our neck saying, where's this thing? Sure. Now that obviously changed as customers came on more and more customers, they start demanding roadmaps, yep. they start demanding timelines. So, you know, then we've had to build in rigor and rules internally around like what we'll agree to, what we won't, how far ahead will we commit in a roadmap? So that's now more. Um, as the as the business grows, we have to address some of the challenges that you're talking to. But yep. in the original days, it was just hardwired. Yep. And uh, I'm doing a bit of a time jump here now, but 2018 seemed like a very, very big year for Vendor Panel. You raised uh, $2.35 million in your Series A, and you've gone up to 1,200 corporate clients as well. You've grew the team to 25, 30 people. Uh, I think you mentioned 29 people earlier on when we were chatting. That's a big relief for you it must be a big relief for you um it's a 10-year journey it's a 10-year journey and yeah. it's not my exit you know yeah i'm really clear on that like i had i don't buy into the whole i'll be successful when i raise money and i know that i'm out of sync with most of the startup world at the moment on that yep. um you know i guess i'm maybe a bit more old school in that i'm like build value sure build a company that creates value for all of the people that are touching that company yeah as best as you possibly can and you know there's a little bit of like, and the rest of it will sort of sort itself out. So yep. we didn't need the money when we raised. Mm. So we were definitely uh, unusual for okay. the VCs because yep. we were turning up, you know, I think at that time we had, I can't remember how many customers. Well, you know, we had a really solid customer base. We'd, you know, had, you know, we were profitable. We'd been profitable for years. We'd um, proven out. All of the original hypotheses, we'd expanded the hypotheses, we'd proven them again, so we'd shown we could continue to innovate, we'd shown we continue to be at the bleeding edge of the market and we can do it not just once but twice, but three times, but four times. Um, Kind of every two years we have a major kind of not just a roadmap technical release but a conceptual release. Like we think we can push people this far now in their understanding of what's possible. Sure. Um, So, yeah, that was – we were – not needing to raise, but in a survival sense. Yep. But there was just these things that were out of reach. Okay. We just couldn't organically make some big steps, both in terms of our technical development. Mm. Um, you know, we really didn't. We're a very unsophisticated sales and marketing organization. Right. So we've, you know, we we grew our way 
because we're good at solving problems and building a good product. Um, you know, we up until last year, we had zero marketing capability. All we'd ever done wow. was win awards. Right. We're good at winning awards. We know how to write. But, um, yeah, we'd never marketed. We'd never – we had no social media presence. We like we didn't do any of the things you're supposed to do, really. Right. Um, we didn't really even use a CRM for our sales wow. process. Like, it was all um, – pretty weak on that side of the business right we, actually, we got um audited actually by a which we you know we created the audit from a one of the big tier consulting firms to come in and just kind of go before we went and raised i was like i just let's drop 20 grand on getting someone else's opinion of our company before i go and get torn apart by a vc right and it was really interesting they came back and basically said in all the metrics that we would assume you would be weak as a small i think at that purse that point we had 13 staff small company you know We'd expect you're really good at marketing and sales and you've got this far, so good on you and you've proven out your concepts, but your back end is going to be um, adequate. Okay. And then they looked at it and they said, basically, the engineering of your back end, your technical infrastructure, your BCPs, your DRPs, your financial structures, your financial management, is like you're operating like a company that's 20 or 30 times bigger than you are. Yep. And yet your marketing and your sales and your the pointy end of the business is really, really low on the scale, yep. like bottoming out. So it was sure. really interesting. We completely inverted their expectations. But that was really actually quite useful to be able to go out for a new raise. And it's like a big chunk of change is going to go into the tech piece, which we know we're good at. Right. Um, but we just need more resources and more people and a different sort of person for a specific part of where we're going. And we really don't know what the hell we're doing around marketing and sales, so we need sure. to bring in people that know more than we do because like, it's not even like we don't know much about it. We, by personality, maybe a bit reluctant in yeah. some of that. Like I really don't like going to conferences and standing into booths because I'm not great at small talk. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was great to just kind of go, and, you know, we know we're weak here. That's where we need help. That's great. And could you just talk us through the process of, a, of raising investment from start to finish? Yeah. Um, you've touched a bit on it by engaging one of the big four, but what else was involved? All they did was the audit. They were okay. not involved in the, we didn't even tell them we were doing a raise. Sure. Yeah. It was just, I just want to point in time, how do we compare? Okay. Um, yeah, if we told them they're doing a raise, they would have tried to get involved. <laughs> um, so what did we do? We... Probably 18 months out, that was obvious on the horizon for me that that was a necessary piece. So we, um, I was really lucky to have a, a really solid mentor for the previous couple of years mm. um, and we sort of went through and said like structurally are we ready? Forget if you believe where we're going, are we ready? And we, our company structure wasn't quite right. Um, so we had to do a whole sort of corporate restructure to become a PTY company. We'd actually set up as a unit trust originally. Gotcha, right. Um, we didn't have a board or any formal governance structures. So we, And I was quite nervous about what that would mean. Sure. So luckily this member of our board is, you know, he's very experienced. He's on a lot of, well, been on quite a number of sort of tier one ASX boards. So right. he brought an ocean of experience that made me feel confident going down that path. So we put in place a board. We restructured, like so. We did a lot of our housekeeping so that we were structurally sound. We obviously were really comfortable talking to the product and the problem, and we had product market fit. Yep. Um, so then it was like, cool. So where are we going? And really just documenting that. It's pretty vanilla. There's a million places you can go now to find out how do I put together a pitch deck. Yep. Turns out, just do what they say. Sure. That's what VCs are expecting. Yep. Be predictable. Um. And so we pulled that together and I, like I literally just went, cool, as of November 1, I start talking to people. So just, you know, and LinkedIn's pretty handy, work out who knows people, friends, relationships, so right. any warm intros, great. And then some cold ones too. Increasingly the VCs have, um, many of them are more accessible now than they ever were. So, yeah, we just hit them up and just like, Here's an email and in seven bullet points, that's why we should talk. Yep. Um, and I was kind of really pleasantly shocked at how many people wanted to talk. Right, amazing. Um, yeah, I think at that point we were maybe had like one and a half billion dollars going through the platform right. per annum. We had, you know, good numbers around users and customers and profitable and this and that. I think they were a bit intrigued. It's like, okay, not well, normally what we're getting. Yeah. So... Um, 
that was really good and it was was great we got a you know a term sheet offered we went through multiple rounds of um investment committees with another one so sure. we went through sort of whittled it down and then we got to a point where it was like you know what this isn't right these vcs that we're talking to are great right but what they want us to be and what we want them to be we're not actually a match okay and that was a really um productive kind of point to get to and i think i I learned a lot about really taking time to genuinely understand the formula because i think the formula for every vc is is different in terms of what they understand how they look at the world what they're focused on right what sorts of businesses they want to invest in um Many of them are good at articulating it. Some of them are not so good at articulating it, but you got to work it out because it's there. Okay. And yeah, like we worked out relatively quickly that a bunch of the people we were talking to, like it just wasn't going to work. Yep. They, I was going to resent them and they were going to hate on me. And a lot of it was around our the sector we're in, the business we're in, it's not like raise money July 1, yep. tip that into SEO, August 1, numbers go berserk. Yep. We're just not that company. Sure. So, you know, we've got like, I think this at the moment, this year we're on 99.2% retention. So we've got like almost no churn. Customers don't really leave. But we've got long, slow sales cycles. We've got, you know, things don't change in a hurry because we're talking about big enterprises with relatively slow decision-making cycles. Um, And to some extent, we're asking them to look at a problem that they've probably been ignoring for a while. Sure. so, yeah, we, I just called it. Like we got to like mid-December. So it was all happened in sort of six weeks and I was like, this isn't going to fly. And I think they were a little bit relieved as well because they were sort of like, ah, oh, this is great. We love where we're going. We love right. the team. We love the problem. We love what you've achieved. But I think it was best summarized by one particular guy. He said, if you can do half of what you think you can do in three years in one year, then just tell us how much money you want. Wow. And I was like, I don't need to half what we're going to do we can do that and we've hit every number we've ever said we will hit. Sure. But it will take three years. Yep. That's amazing. And if that doesn't work for you, this is going to suck. Is it down to gut feel in that sense? No, I just think it's just like let's it's, it's chemistry between... No, I think it's mechanical. Like they're sitting okay. there trying to get you to fit into a spreadsheet and look at your forecasts right. and go, okay. do you fit the trajectory that we need to invest in? Like sure. what is our return multiples that we need to see in what time frames. Like it's really structured, right? Yep, okay. They don't necessarily show this to you, but it's there. And it's like, we're not going to fit, you know, and that's the metrics of it. And then there's just their disposition. Like, I think they just would have got frustrated. It's like, why are you guys taking so long? It's like, because that's how it works in our gig. Yeah. We understand our market. Yeah. Now, what was really cool is we'd built enough trust and good relationships that we actually said to them, who do you reckon we should, once they agreed, they're like, I think you're right. Right. And I was like, so who do you think we should talk to? Okay. And then they were like, wow, you should totally talk to these guys and these guys and these guys. They love this sort of thing. They like, And so um, they ended up introducing us to the people that invested. So I went, right, I'm going to take a step off. It's Christmas. We got the team together back in January we had learned a lot about how big this could get. I think I do appreciate the um, the VCs really pushed me hard on how big this could be. And sure. I think in reality, when I looked at it from a different lens, I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. Like it could actually be so much – like I was already excited and it's like this could be so much bigger than we'd realised right? or being confident enough to claim. Um, so we sort of went back, pulled those numbers apart so we felt comfortable and then went, let's go again. And basically the next two people we talked to, well, the next one we talked to came on board. They took out the whole round. Then I went and saw the next guys. We had already filled the round. They were really interested and we had to kind of go back and try and negotiate some space and then extend the round a bit because we really wanted them in strategically. Sure. Um, So that ended up being more of the administration of it because that was a relatively quick process from there. And once we got clearer in who would be the right investor and we just narrowed in and it was like wow that made it much easier and was that just six weeks from start to finish so the the first sprint of like go out talk to them realize we're talking to the wrong people was about six weeks right and then went about in jan maybe late jan something like that yep yeah and it was probably another six or eight weeks to get to the point where it was like term sheets are done and then it was 
DD, which went, you know, that went for another whatever. Yep. Couple of months probably. And they closed in, in August of 2018. Uh, we, no, we closed in June. June, got it. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. We might have closed. Yeah, I think we closed early June and we announced in July, something okay. like that. Technically, we sort of agreed on everything and then we decided for some mechanical reasons to just wait until the 30th and just execute on a round number. Sure. Because again, and I guess that was part of it, like, because yeah. we weren't sitting there going, we need the cash to survive. It's like, oh, it'd be sort of better from an accounting point of view if so we were able to just sort of massage some stuff around to right. make it more convenient. And uh, for, for the people listening who are thinking of doing a fundraise, was it a strategy? Did you lay out a, an entire fundraising strategy prior to going out to investors, or was it more of a ad hoc thing? What was your just general strategy towards that? Was it planned from start to finish? Um, well, I guess you kind of got to know why you're raising money, hmm. and then it's reasonable to say, What are you going to do if you get it? Yep, so I guess there was a pretty clear plan of, um, what does the raise look like to us? Sure. Um, me being me, I just wrote that down. So I ended up with like a 60 page document, yeah. which was the strategy. Wow. I think anyone wanted to read that, right? But it meant that I got to be crystal clear in my mind how it all mapped together. Sure. And it made it much easier for me to then articulate it and get the whole company on board. Cause I didn't want them coming in and talking to even a junior member of the team and them going, Oh, I don't know where this company's going. So I was sure. really clear. It's like, we all are on this one boat. Yep. Um, and then you got to compress that down to like six bullet points and then 10 to slide deck and then a three-pager. But um, in terms of the actual process of talking to VCs, like I just kind of treated it like a sales process. Okay. I went, what do I think the 10 steps are here? Or it's probably seven steps. We did have a CRM by then, so I just created a workflow in the CRM and right. I'm just like, here's my prospects. I've had my first call. I've moved them to – normally I'd move them to like an intro demo or here I've moved them to a first coffee. And then sure. I, so I just really did that. And it was just yep. a numbers game and just – just push them to a terminal point. They're out, they're in. I actually love talking to them way more than I expected. People okay. talk about how hard <laughs> it is, but it's like, oh, I just love, like, you don't have to fluff around with all the small talk. It's like, you can get a long way in 15 minutes. Straight to the point. And, you know, and most of them, they'll blow out and obviously, you know, they get interested and they want to know more and more and more. But it's like, you, you can pretty quickly work out who's interested and who's not mutually. And, uh, and I really loved how quickly they said no. The ones that said no, was awesome. They're just like, man, sounds great. Well played. Doesn't fit us. Yep. Who can I introduce you to? That's great. Yeah. And you're just like, that's great. Um, I want to speak to someone who fits this profile. They're like, I only know one guy, but I'll introduce you. Great. And you're like, my, I've only got halfway through my latte. But it's yeah. like, I just loved how quickly that would process through. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, but I guess in that time, you can also build enough credibility or rapport that they'd be willing to say, well, who, you know, who do you want to talk to? Because it's not me. I can only invest in this sort of stuff. But, Sounds interesting, so maybe you should talk to them. So that, great, thanks. That's amazing. Yeah. So now you've you've taken the money. Uh, you're you're on an extremely strong growth trajectory. What's next for Vendor Panel? Well, it's I think you know the growth trajectory for us, as I'm indicated in sort of the story, is like there is this kind of step for us. So there's been a huge growth in terms of our investment. Sure. And we're only now starting to really see that impact, which is what. Seven months after we raised, eight months after we raised. Yep. So, you know, there's probably an element where that may be pretty normal, but like I know a lot of the VCs were wanting to see like big impact in the first quarter. Sure. Um, so we've played pretty true to plan, I think. Um, and we're just now starting to see that come through. Look, so what, what is it about for us? Look, there's a big tech piece. I think there's a huge opportunity to do, keep focus on the same problem, but just do more stuff that's kind of cool in that space. Right. Um, then um, in terms of growth, or we have a big investment in sales and marketing um, and we're just expanding. We were largely government. We've, you know, and we've landed in a couple of mining companies this fortnight. We've never had anyone in that wow. sector before. We've yeah. got more and more this year. We've picked up a significant um, presence in the construction and infrastructure space. Um, so pushing into new markets. Um, and then also we've um, had a pilot running in Canada as a new territory. Yep. Um, that is going really well. So um, that's we're now at the process of sort of like what does that next step look like? Sure. Um, there's one other geography that we're sort of flirting with. Um, but look, it's it's the same problem, just, you know, 
more of it. Yep. Um, and we're really mindful not to kind of snap the elastic band. You know, it's like we will not try and go everywhere in the world. Sure. We will focus in certain areas, in certain markets, um, just because I think that's a, a better bet. Amazing. James, I'd love to spend more time picking your brain on new markets and expansion, but we've only got time for one more question. So I'll end with this. If someone wanted to get involved with with Vendor Panel, whether it's a customer or a potential new team member who's interested or, you know, a a prospective investor, what should they do to learn more and get involved? Oh, look, I think at a a superficial level, it's, you know, you go to vendorpanel.com and you can start learning about it that way. Sure. Uh, We just hired a guy who's basically been contacting and interacting and joining seeing us at events for the last six months okay. so that was how to how he's managed to get in the in the loop um but i think whatever's the the doorway that gets opened i think it's about understanding what we're about because mm. for us it's not just about money and risk i think we've got this part of us that's you know we're we're a very commercial organization that plans on making plenty of money but when we look at you, know, we're managing, you know, probably do $3 billion this year. And it's like, that's cool. But it's like when you start thinking about what you can do with that money once you manage it better. Sure. You can start looking at that as a very, very significant lever for driving positive social change. So a big thing for us isn't just about reducing risk in procurement or saving money in procurement, even though we do it. It's like, there are certain bands of procurement and they're very, very big, but it's like if you could do that better and save money and save risk, you know, you can also drive local economic development and regional development and you can support indigenous communities and disability enterprises and you can drive really positive social change whilst still doing better procurement than you were before. And, you know, I think it's like you got to kind of get a handle on like what are these people about? What is this organisation about? That's part of what we're about. And so, you know, we've got customers that are pretty excited about that. We've got customers that are just really just want to reduce risk and save money and make things easier. Yep. But, you know, they're on a journey and sometimes they're starting to understand. But for our staff, if people are joining the company to be part of the team, they kind of got to get what we're about. Like there's, there's a bit of Gatorade there. Yep. And uh, we think it's a huge opportunity. Amazing. James, congratulations on your success. I think uh, you embody the spirit of entrepreneurship really, really well. Um, you know, you've been in Vendor Panel for 10 years, but in many ways, the journey has only just begun for your company. And, uh, you know, we can't wait to see what you get up to. And thank you for being on the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to People Building Businesses. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. If you want to get in touch with us with guest suggestions or feedback, email peoplebuildingbusinesses at ybfventures.com. Thanks for listening.